0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For June 9th, 2022, it's the Is San Francisco a Hellscape Edition I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C., back in Washington after being in Chicago, which is definitively not a hellscape. I am joined, of course, by my dear ones, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily.
2: Hello, David.
1: And John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning from New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. Hello, world. This week, we're not going to talk about the January 6th commission hearings, because they're tonight for where we are. It's Thursday morning when we're taping. And so they're awkwardly, awkwardly timed. So we're going to talk about lots of other things instead. We're going to talk about Tuesday's primary results, which were either really bad for Democrats or incredibly bad for them. We'll discuss. Then we'll talk about the bad vibes economy. Americans are pretty okay with their own economic circumstances, but deeply depressed and gloomy about the country. Why is that? And then the new season of Slowburn, burn, Roe v. Wade, digs into how America's abortion politics came to be. We will talk to its host and creator, Susan Matthews. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. So there's a form in journalism these days, which is six things we learned on Tuesday about whatever. And everyone does this now. Anytime you open up any publication, the New York Times probably JohnCBS.com, Vox Media. They've got six things that we learned. And there were a lot of six things we learned on Tuesday from the primaries uh, in various states, notably California and Iowa, but a lot of other ones too. They all felt to me like they kind of downplayed the really big one, which is that Democrats are in just monumental trouble. Democrats are not really voting. Republicans are nominating quite electable candidates in the few competitive races that exist. John is like, maybe, (laughs) electable-ish. (laughs) <laughs> and people are unhappy. So John, John, am I Am I painting too dire a picture for Democrats based on what happened on Tuesday? First, tell us what happened Tuesday.
2: I mean, on Tuesday, most of the angst is coming from California, where you had very low turnout in a very blue state. First of all, California is California. So like New York, anything that happens in California has an outsized impact. Also, California is gargantuan. Um, and so just Just sheer size would make it have an outside impact, not just the fact it's near where there are a lot of cameras. But in San Francisco and in Los Angeles, there are huge debates over crime and homelessness. And that matters because when you have that debate in front of a lot of cameras in cities, people know it tends to get into the media stream. And that's bad for Democrats because the idea that Democrats are weak on those two issues is a bad thing to have people talking about in an election year. So low turnout to me doesn't, um, by itself, it doesn't ring the alarm bells. However, it connects with the broader th- message which is Democrats are less enthusiastic than Republicans, which is the only thing that matters. It's 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 relative enthusiasm. Republicans are quite enthusiastic. You still have you have a president at, with I think his approval rating is at its lowest in his presidency. It's about 40%. Um, the generic ballot where you ask people would you vote for a Republican or a Democrat in the in the congressional races is not as bad for Democrats as it was. There was a time when it was historically bad in this cycle. It's still bad though. Republicans are up by about two and a half points. You don't want that. And all pred- predictions are still that the that that this lack of enthusiasm, the bad headwinds, um, and the just gloomy national picture um, is, looks like you know the House twenty to thirty seats might go to the Republicans. The Senate's very much in play. So. All of that stuff is all true, and nothing on Tuesday undermined that. Um, and so so you're right, broadly, that things are very bad for Democrats. I don't know that anything—I don't feel like anything happened Tuesday that said, oh my gosh, they're even worse than we thought, because they were already pretty bad.
1: So, Emily, the few voters who were not mugged or attacked getting to the polls in San Francisco on Tuesday, <laughs> the few of them oh, who man, were able to make really it seem to have it. cast a vote to— to dispense with their district attorney, Chase Budine, um, the, the the story there is, you know, as one one version of it is, San Francisco is a hellscape. Uh, Chase Budine is a soft on crime prosecutor who doesn't care that people well, I'm are. I'm
3: glad we're spewing misinformation. Get, I'm month.
1: giving one position, and then I'll give the other one. That's one position. <laughs> the other position is that actually crime in San Francisco in general is down Is mostly, uh, especially sort of the worst, worst forms of crime and, uh, that there was a heavily funded by conservative billionaire types movement to, to disgrace a reform or get rid of a reform prosecutor to, to score political points counting on the small low turnout that would happen in an election. And indeed Boudin is out. So which of those narratives is true?
3: The second narrative is the true one. I mean, crime overall is not really up in San Francisco, but disorder is and this feeling of homelessness being out of control. And that's not really something, honestly, that the district attorney um, has control over. But man, did that not work as an argument for Chasa in this election. Um, I should say, as usual, Chasa is a former student and a friend of mine. My sister, Laura, has been running his innocence commission. So I am very much not impartial about this race, but I think what was really striking was the way in which the police and the city, in particular Mayor London Breed, succeeded in really casting Chasa as a cause of a type of disorder, a type of problem in the city that he has actually like a very marginal role in. The police weren't redeploying resources to make arrests in residential areas where things like auto break-ins and auto thefts had gone up. Um, There were these, you know, viral videos of shoplifting, um, again, a matter of low arrests, um, in addition to whatever message um, Chesa had sent by talking about prosecuting shoplifting differently. But I really feel like there's this disconnect between what he was doing as a progressive prosecutor and the problems the city were having. I was reading a... Piece that I honestly loathed last night by Nellie Bowles um, for the Atlantic, which is just sort of castigating um, the problems in San Francisco with a kind of cruelty about, you know, issues of drug addiction and poverty, and. You know, I just felt like there was this lashing going on this feeling, you know, among a lot of people who otherwise I think consider themselves liberals in San Francisco, though I don't know if that's true about Nellie Bowles, that, you know, there's just like something is awry in their city. And this guy who has this, you know, interesting past, his parents were in the weather underground, Um, he was a public defender, not a prosecutor, like somehow he was the wrong person for the moment, or he was the right person to blame. And also a ton of right wing money came in behind the recall. So, you know, it's... It is a big deal in San Francisco. I don't know how much it really translates, but you already see, and this predates this election, Democrats starting to kind of freak out about any kind of progressive message on criminal justice. Eric Adams is an example of that. Sometimes the way President Biden talks also shows that. And that's the part of this that worries me is that Democrats are going to overlearn this lesson and we're going to go back to the cycle of, you know, incredibly both useless and harmful mass incarceration that we were just coming down off of that, um, off of that problem.
1: It is true that, that Chesa Boudin is clearly a scapegoat for something that's going on. But with this recall, with the recall of the San Francisco school board members earlier, it's not simply that people were brainwashed and like that right-wing voters came into San Francisco and spent money to vote. It's that the people who live in San Francisco came out and voted because they are unhappy with something. And so they're exp- even, if, even if they have been ginned up and like misguided and the police have, have not done a great job uh, doing the job they should have done, like the people are not happy.
3: Oh, totally. No, I mean, there's no question. I That's one of the reasons I put the right-wing money at the end, not at the beginning, and talking about causes. When people are unhappy with the shape of their city, they are going to look for something or someone to blame, and the message that, like, well, we've done some reform, but we're not there yet, or the city is really one, the one with the huge budget compared to the DA's office to adjust things like drug addiction and homelessness. Like that just doesn't play very well. And I think, you know, one contrast between Chasa and some of the other progressive prosecutors like Kim Fox in Chicago or Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who have won reelection in the last couple of years is that Chesa just, he wasn't um, kind of willing to say like the shake your fist, I'm going to be tough um, in some way. Um, and he's all like Kim Fox is extremely good at exuding empathy. She is herself a victim of um child sexual abuse. And there's just this way in which I think she emotionally connects with people that's really special. And Chaso was more cerebral, and he was making this argument about data and about where to place the blame that wasn't him. And I just don't think it's obviously to say something really obvious that did not succeed politically. You know, it's also true that San Francisco is mostly white and Asian, and Asian Americans in San Francisco were really, really upset about hate crime, and his support was weakest there.
1: John, Rick Caruso, the extremely wealthy businessman in Los Angeles who who finished atop of their mayoral primary, switched his party affiliation from Republican to Democrat when he decided to run for office, recognizing, I think, that it would be very hard as a Republican to get elected in Los Angeles. Is it a good thing for Democrats to have to have people who are not, you know, he's not clearly deep, soulful, progressive Democrat. He's at best some sort of moderate who is capitalizing and jumping in to take take advantage of an opportunity. But is that is that relatively good for them or bad for them? Is that is the Michael Bloomberg effect valuable?
2: Kind of depends. Kind of depends. It depends where the fight is and what we're talking about. So, for example, if, you know, Democrats to hold on to the House have to win in more moderate places um, and places where you're not going to have, where turning out the liberal base is important, but it's not the only thing. And so to convince voters kind of in the middle And remember, also, the Democratic Party is different than the Republican Party. The weight of the party is not in the liberal base in the way that the the nationalist MAGA base controls the Republican Party. It's a smaller part of the Democratic Party, and the majority part of the Democratic Party is a little bit more to the right of that liberal base so when i talk about turning out the base that's not even the same as in the republican party my point though is if you have charismatic popular or not popular but well-known democrats who fit a mold of being more moderate all these terms are quite movable um it helps candidates in other races say i'm this kind of democrat it creates a pattern that, that other candidates can fall into, and that's good for Democrats if Democrats have to win in states that are more competitive and where they need to convince a lot of voters that they're not super liberal. You see a lot of these candidates, when they talk about defunding the police and how they're against it, They're doing that to send a signal to voters. It's not because defund the police is a live issue anymore. They're raising it themselves to say, look, I'm not like this. So to the extent that there is a Mike Bloomberg type candidate or Caruso or Adams in New York, they can say, I'm like them. I'm affiliated with their thinking. And that helps voters put them in the right slot, which they hope will get them reelected.
1: Our Slate Plus segment this week, we do them, of course, every week, bonus segments. Our Slate Plus segment this week is going to be about the 20th anniversary of perhaps the best or most important or most talked about TV show of our time, The Wire. And uh, you can get that by becoming a Slate Plus member by going to slate.com slash GavFest Plus. Where you will get member exclusive episodes and segments from us and from other shows like Slow Burn, which we're about to talk about, and Amicus, and no ads on any of our podcasts. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.
2: Hello, GabFest listeners. I have a very exciting announcement. I'm coming to you live from the streets of New York City because we're going to be coming to you live on June 29th. You can join me. Emily and David at 6th and I in Washington, D.C. Not the streets of New York, but Washington, D.C. Slate Plus members will get an exclusive discount. So, if you're a Slate Plus member, you're golden. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, what a great time to join. So, go to slate.com slash gabfest right now to get your tickets. They're first come, first served. And while there are unlimited virtual tickets, there's a limited number of in-person, not virtual be with us together tickets. We can't wait to see you on the 29th at 7 30 Eastern Time at 6th and I in Washington, D.C. See you then.
1: This episode of the Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Our second topic is really connected to our first one uh, because, of course, the election results on Tuesday were in some sense a conversation about the economy because the economy is a conundrum wrapped in a riddle, packed in an enigma Priced at $5.99 a gallon. Enigmas are so
2: expensive in my neighborhood. (laughs) It's hard to even know what the price is.
1: There has rarely, maybe never, been such a sharp divide between how Americans feel about their own economic position and how they feel about the economy as a whole. According to Fed data from this week, nearly 80% of Americans are feeling good about their own economic state. But only 24% of us are feeling confident about the national economy. What is going on, John?
2: Well, Derek Thompson wrote about this in the Atlantic and he has a bunch of theories which some of which I'm stealing. I mean there are a couple of things, you know, uh savings rates went up during um during COVID a lot of people got um uh, checks as a result. Um, and so had more money coming in, um, housing prices have increased considerably. People have a lot of options in jobs that they didn't have before. And for some people just having the optionality makes them feel better. And some people are actually going and getting new jobs and that makes them feel better. People's work arrangements at home are making some of them feel better. And also in some cases, the data are a little older because we see inflation eroding, even though we still have wage growth right now, the erosion of the wage growth is as bad as it's been, um, I think, in 40 years. So part of it is where you're getting the numbers. But um, I think more broadly, there is a kind of everything is awful all the time, constantly feeling around the land. And this is, um, you know, cognitively, we know that negative impressions are harder to to get out of your brain than happy ones. So um we our media and our social media are basically addicted to um, misery. Um, and also we are in a moment where one of the key ways we think about inflation is gas prices, which is something we touch every day either at the pump or because we see gas prices in you know in the billboards as we drive by gas stations. So part of this is what's really happening in the economy, and part of it's what's happening in the broader culture with the way we process, negative ideas um and the way we think about things more broadly one other thing i would just add pew had a survey recently that said only 20 percent of the country thinks that politicians are in it for public service and to do good um which is a part of this general feeling of just it's all uh bad even though my own personal situation i might think of more favorably but
1: i don't i mean it doesn't take a harvard phd to to have insight about this economy. I don't think it's weird at all. To me, it's not cognitively dissonant that people are okay with their own circumstances and deeply worried about the world. The world is really deeply worrying. It's not because the media is constantly- But it's not
2: the world, it's the economic world.
1: but the economic world is is subjunctive to the world as a whole. And one of the reasons why the economic world is bad is that right now we're in the middle of a huge kind of resetting of a global economy. a lot of the
3: war in ukraine plus
1: there's a war in ukraine and
3: and awful and but
1: but the things that are going to make the things that are going to make the economy less more stable in the long run that's going to make inflation less likely in the long run are things that are difficult like you have to weaken your dependence on russian oil you have to wean yourself off of chinese goods and off of a chinese supply chain make the supply chain less dependent on china these are painful and expensive and costly and long-term things People are smart and thinking, oh, this is actually not a great situation. It's not going to get that much better that quickly. And so be apprehensive about it.
3: The headline this week is global growth will be choked amid inflation and war, World Bank says. So it seems deeply rational to be worried. I mean, it feels to me like we're sort of fiddling while Rome is burning right now, both in terms of these larger economic forces and then also um, my deep concern about politics and democracy and how stable that's going to prove to be, which has some relationship. Um, and it just seems like are you can feel fine about your own circumstances, I suppose, if you're protected from rising gas prices and the hardest hits of inflation because you have some kind of cushion or savings or your income is higher. But you can also look out at the longer term trajectory and really wonder, like, how is this all going to play out? Right.
2: Right. One's how you're feeling today. One's how you're going to feel yeah. in a year.
1: Yeah. Right. John, does Biden and his administration have any uh, do they have any tools to deal with this problem from hell? It is it doesn't feel like they they feel that they do. It doesn't feel like they've got a a bunch of good ideas for it. Um, Are they missing something? The first George Bush were
2: um, treated in the press on the economy question. And what um, I can't remember the political scientists at the moment, but they, they studied this question. And what they found was there's an overwhelming coverage of negative economic news, not very much coverage of good economic news. And so it's ever so it's ever been thus. That's a bad state of affairs. It shouldn't be that way. Our job is not to alarm people. Unfortunately, we've only gotten worse at that. So, to the extent that alarming people is um, kind of constantly what happens, that's very hard to get past um, because you have to break through to get to people, and you always run the risk that you're "quote unquote" out of touch, and no, and no politician wants to be seen out of touch. There are also not that many levers that a that a president can use um, to move the economy, um, and especially when the economy is in this funky place that it's in now, with all of the things that we've already been discussing. I do think, as a matter of, um, and this goes back to our first topic, as a matter of messaging, a party that's in power has to make the case for how the party that's coming into power—they um, have to turn it into a choice, not a referendum. And if it's a choice, you're screwed when things when people are unhappy. If you if you the only chance you have is to articulate what the other side is going to do. And Republicans are very smart in that they're not saying what they're going to do in part because it's complicated and hard to do. Secondly, once you say what you're going to do, you become a target. Maybe they um, don't have a
3: plan about what they're going to do. How about that possibility? Yeah, and also,
2: and third, and third is that the, that the plan, they may not have a plan, and fourth, the things that are part of the plan, are something that even their own voters and they don't believe in, like, you know, budget reduction, budget cutting, that people like Senator Scott talk about, uh, Senator Scott of Florida, that nobody's going to do because f- for all the reasons we know from the past history of the last 40 some odd years. Um, so uh, it's a very, very hard thing uh, for the president to get around. Um, and, and so I'm not quite sure how, uh, I mean, I'm not sure how he can do it on the economy.
5: No purchase necessary. VDW group, Void where prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
1: We're joined now by Susan Matthews Slate Podcaster. She's the host of the new season of Slow Burn, which is, of course, a brilliant history podcast. And she really timed her season really well. It's a well-timed series on Roe v. Wade. Uh, although I want to talk about that title, um, because it looks at how America's strange and contentious abortion politics came to be by telling stories around Roe v. Wade. In a way, I think Roe v. Wade is a misnomer because at least so far, what you're telling is all about the abortion stories that are not Roe v.
6: Wade. Which makes the season better. (laughs) Thank you, Emily. (laughs) Yeah, we had a conversation about if we wanted to call this season The Road to Row, because really what we're um, what we're focusing on is I would say the years of 1970 through 1972. The decision comes out in January of 1973. So we're really looking at the lead up. We decided not to call it The Road to Row because it just sounds a little bit weird. And I think that that's what the Iraq season was called. So we skipped that. And we are, the first two episodes have really not touched on Roe v. Wade at all. But in the next two episodes, We are going to go into a courtroom. We haven't done that yet, but we are heading there. And we actually... Derek John, who is our one of our editors, had a really brilliant idea pretty early on because one of my episodes for a long time had kind of been named in my head. Justice Blackman goes to the Mayo Clinic, and that had kind of been the first episode for a while. And uh, we actually early on made the switch in the season. So the very last episode, episode four, it's just a four episode arc, is about the case Roe against Wade, as Justice Blackman used to call it.
3: So the season begins with an interview with Nancy Stearns, who is the lawyer, one of the kick-ass feminist lawyers who brought some of the cases that preceded Roe v.ersus Wade but did not go to the Supreme Court. And a week or so ago, I wrote a piece about Nancy and Florence Kennedy, um, who's this um, another amazing badass lawyer from New York at that time, who unfortunately has since died. Um, And I was taking a sort of different path. You're very much doing your own thing. But it was so great to hear Nancy's voice in the beginning of this podcast. And I felt like I was sharing with you tell me if I'm wrong, some sense that there is this history of these feminist lawyers and feminists of other stripes who were trying so hard to make their voices heard and to really make a case for the right to abortion rooted in equal protection and the idea of women's equality and freedom that Justice Blackman fumbled the Supreme Court like it just didn't get it um and Nancy remains kind of intensely frustrated about this and I just wonder if that was part of your interest in this subject too and you know obviously you go on to podcast about women versus Connecticut which is this 1972 case also really important.
6: To your point about Nancy, I just have to say this backstory because I knew that the first episode, once we switched the order, was going to be about Shirley Wheeler. And Shirley Wheeler is uh, thought to be the first woman in the United States who was convicted of manslaughter for getting an abortion. And that happened in 1971. And so I had her name and I was looking through her case files and all these things. And I came across Nancy's name because she represented her on the appeal. And so I found Nancy and I called her up and I said, I'm looking into this case. It's about Shirley Wheeler. It's about Shirley Wheeler for this podcast about the lead up to Roe v. Wade. And she said, I can talk to you about Shirley, but what you really should be talking to me about is the work that I did in New York and Connecticut. So we ended up talking about both. Nancy uh, makes an appearance in, in episode three, but we really focused on the grassroots uh, women of women versus Connecticut. So it'll be a little bit different, but there's there's a bit of overlap. Give
2: a little more of that context that you came across or the mind space you were in and that you try to put us in. Um, I mean, You know, even Nancy's story like you, I don't want to take it away, but how she comes into being interested in the law is it was immediately transporting in the sense of like, just what life was like, then what opportunities were available and how those were presented in the culture? What, um, what other uh, things to you are on stage here that are part of um, the context of those times?
6: The third episode starts with the story of Anne Hill, who is one of those women who is a woman in Connecticut. And she starts by when I first talked to her about, like, how did you end up in law school? She started Yale Law School in 1968. And she said that she was admitted because all the white men were fighting in the Vietnam War. So there's really this moment in the late 60s where there's just this huge period of change. And it actually, to, to back up even more into some of the context for the what happens with abortion in this time and why abortion becomes so contentious in this time, if we back up even further, abortion is criminalized in America in about the 1860s, but it's kind of ignored for a very long time, for decades even. It's ignored basically up to World War II. Starting in World War II and after World War II, what happens is women are entering the workforce, women are going to college, women are delaying getting married. And they're having sex sooner. So all of a sudden, the need for abortion shifts from being women who are primarily married mothers of three, four, five children to being a situation in which it's a single woman. It's a girl. It's a teenage girl. It's a, it's a woman who wants to go to college. It's a woman who wants to continue with her career. So that really happens in the in the late 40s, 50s and 60s. And in response to that, the infrastructure starts to crack down on this practice. So it had been illegal, but they'd kind of let it operate. And so they start to crack down on it. And that's when it kind of goes further underground. It becomes more dangerous. And all of these things happen at once to lead to a situation in the 1960s where doctors are really the first ones saying, this has become really dangerous. We need to change this. And then women kind of follow in in the late 1960s.
1: I thought your second episode about the Catholic couple that created and defined and framed the pro-life position in a new way it was brilliant and i thought it was brilliant because it was well a because it told a story i'd never heard but also it was really sympathetic to this couple it's this is i just thought it was it was very deep and insightful and respectful of how these people went about it. Can you talk a little bit about the Wilkies?
6: Yes, I would love to talk about the Wilkies. This is my current favorite episode. I say that about every episode I just finished working on. I First of all, I want to say that I'm really glad to hear that it came off that way because I knew that this was going to be a tricky episode to pull off. And I think that one of the things about the Wilkies that really allowed me to do this is that they don't become the kind of pro-life activists who are protesting outside of abortion clinics and and murdering doctors so what i wanted to do in this episode was to really actually try to understand what that deeply held belief is. Like, I think that so much of what we think about now is that Republicans are taking abortion and they're 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 kind of taking advantage of it to to get these voters. They don't believe in it. There's kind of an orientation that I think is a little bit problematic when we don't take seriously the people who actually really think that life starts at conception. And if you believe that life starts at conception, there are a whole bunch of other opinions and feelings that will follow from that. And I thought that the Wilkies really kind of demonstrate that position in a way that was was incredibly interesting to me. And I was so nervous when I was reaching out to Marie Wilkie Myers. I I had reached out to a few other people who, who actually didn't want to talk to me. I had emailed Marie, and she hadn't responded. And I emailed her again, and I was just getting really nervous about it. And she just kind of, like, two days later, she responded and said, like, oh, I just didn't see your email. I would be delighted to talk to you. And I got on the phone with her. And she was so gracious and generous. And I I was really in awe of that. I also think that like, she really believes what she believes. And for her, this was an opportunity to talk to people about why. Uh, And I think that that, to me, felt like you can't tell this story without looking at that side. And you can't look at that side without understanding the actual people who, who thought this from a very genuine point of view.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And also, so many people have opinions about abortion that are not reflected in our polarized political debate. Um, I just have to note, uh, and forgive me, I haven't finished listening to that episode yet, but um, John Wilkie uh, is an obstetrician, and one of the things he's known for is this claim of his that... um, People who are raped can somehow prevent themselves from getting pregnant, um, which is, you know, has stayed with us into modern day Republican politics and has this incredibly grisly origin in experiments that the Nazis did on women who were imprisoned and um, German women, not actually Jewish women, the women who stayed actually in prison, who were not carted off um, to the death camps, they actually did experiments on them. And that's where the origin of that idea comes from. It's something I wrote about for Slay years ago. It's really pretty horrifying. So I just have to add that footnote.
6: I have one more uh, footnote to add about this specifically, too, and then I want to talk about the legitimate rape comment. Uh, I also spoke to a medical historian who didn't make it into the show, but one of the things that she said, and maybe Emily, you're familiar with this, is that there was like kind of a much older belief uh, that for conception to happen, both parties needed to come to orgasm. And so if a woman was raped and she became pregnant, the response to that would be, You must have enjoyed the sex. And I thought that that also likely informed this uh, this theory. So for the, for the handbook on abortion, so like I started my journalism career as a science journalist. So when I got the handbook on abortion and started reading through it, I was really interested in the way that they frame their sentences. They're really, really careful about saying probably and might in these ways that are like you know, here's one study that sort of showed this for the rape claim in particular, they kind of go through a bunch of different avenues to suggest that. And one of the avenues that they go through is comparing instances of pregnancy from sex that is uh, consensual to instances of pregnancy that from sex that is not consensual. And they like find one study that shows that it's much more likely to happen in consensual sex in comparison. So that's just kind of a peek at what they're doing with the science in all of these references in the handbook is that they kind of find one thing that they can kind of like turn two degrees to kind of make their point that this is the case, like all of the consequences of what might have this post-abortion syndrome idea for what could happen to a woman after she gets an abortion. The science in it is is so weak. And yet the thing that is so interesting about them is that they present it As such a work of science, they are so clearly motivated by their Catholicism and they're so connected to the church. And that's something that really started them in this. But they present themselves constantly as just neutral arbiters of science. And I think that 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 is something that I think comes up when you look into how this side talks about of course, it's just science that life begins at conception.
3: Oh, absolutely. And that has continued. I mean, you know, to this very day, all the arguments about how abortion restrictions are designed to, pr- to protect women claim to be rooted in science, which crumbles once you start poking into it. But it is all cast in this veneer of being, you know, having legitimate science behind it.
2: Susan, speaking of motivated reasoning, um, memory and what happens to it over 50 years. What did you find and learn about memory when you were going back and talking to these various characters?
6: Yeah, it's really tough to find people who have really clear memories of what happened 50 years ago. In fact, with Nancy Stearns, she was digging up her papers to look at things. For Horace Smith, this is so interesting. So, He's still practicing law and I had reached out to him like kind of through his legal practice and he gave me a call on a Saturday that I was actually in Florida and I picked up the phone just because it came in from a Daytona Beach number not thinking that it was going to be Shirley Wheeler's prosecutor Horace Smith and then it was and I I think and I've gone back and I've compared some of the things that Horace Smith said to me and some of the things that Horace Smith said contemporaneously to the press and I actually think that while I, I, my senses is that this case has gotten slightly exaggerated in his mind in the, in the, in, in the 50 years in between. And at the time he was very convinced that Shirley was about six months pregnant. And to me, he said that she must've been seven and a half or eight months pregnant. He's kind of an interesting character because I think that he is kind of a middle person. He isn't really ideologically on either side, but he kind of came to me saying, listen, I was, a, I was a prosecutor. I was a, I was a DA in, in, the, in Daytona Beach in 1971. And what was happening was that we saw several women die from illegal abortions. And so I felt that it was my job as the enforcer of the law to try to find the person who was performing these abortions. And that's why this was so important to me. And that's why it was such a problem when Shirley refused to tell me who did it, because I was just trying to keep women safe. And you can look at that and say that's very patriarchal and the solution to it is to make abortion legal. But like from a very immediate standpoint, his point of view, I think we can be sympathetic to to that as well. And to the memory question, I mean, I kind of went back to him afterwards and I I kind of tried to show him some of these stories. One of the things that he he was really adamant about was that there was no way that the judge had said she had to get married or or go home, that that was not possible. And I kind of sent him a a roster of all of these different news articles. And his response was a little bit like, well, you can't trust the media, which felt like a very 2022 uh, idea just transported back to 1971. And I had been very specific about picking out like the Miami Herald and just like a bunch of local papers that would not be, you know, conceived of as, as anything at the time. But I thought that that was really funny too.
3: So I was totally interested in his point of view. I have to say that when I got to the part where he said like, I prosecuted this woman, you know, we put her in jail uh, before, during the trial. And that's why no one else died of a botched abortion. I just wanted to tear my hair out.
6: Well, I have to say one thing, Emily, because we spent a lot of time trying to find actual cases of uh, reports of other women having died from illegal abortions. We did not find any. That does not mean that they didn't happen. They were often not reported. It's not surprising to me that we didn't find any, but we did not find any.
3: Telling.
1: Telling. Uh- Roe v. Wade, Slow Burn, listen to it. Susan Matthews, thanks for joining us. You can get Slow Burn wherever you get podcasts. Also, Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments, bonus mini episodes of Slow Burn as well. So join Slate Plus for that reason alone. Thanks, Susan. Thank you all. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you're sitting with your NAPA, some Napa wine that you looted from a San Francisco liquor store last time you were in San Francisco. (laughs) What are you going to be chattering about?
3: It's June, which means that it is nearing the end of the Supreme Court's term. There are a bunch of cases I'm deeply interested in. Obviously, the fate of abortion is hanging in the balance. So are the powers of state and um, states and cities to uh, have gun safety laws. There's a big case about the federal government's power to regulate carbon emissions. And then two big cases about the role of religion in American life, especially in American schools. So all of that is this term. But um, next term, we are looking at the possibility, um, along with uh, cases about affirmative action and other aspects of voting rights, the court could take a case out of North Carolina that addresses the authorities of state courts and state election commissions, anything other than a state legislature, to make rules about elections that are different from um, what a legislature has actually codified. So for example, in Pennsylvania in 2020, you had the Pennsylvania Supreme Court extending the deadline for people to return absentee ballots um, given the particular circumstances of that election. These kinds of um, powers to state courts and other regulatory bodies have become really part of the framework of how states regulate elections. But there is a clause in the Constitution which names the legislature as the state body with the power to make rules about elections. And so if the Supreme Court decides, um, unlike its precedents, to be. super specific about that word, it could really, really change the way, um, states are able to control, um, and really just increase access to the vote. That's really what's at stake here. So this case that's courts considering, it comes from North Carolina. It's called Moore versus Harper. And I'm going to be watching very closely to see if the court adds it to the docket for next
2: term. John, what's your chatter? My chatter is about two things. One is, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the economist, um, newspaper as they call it their cover story um which is depressing as hell the coming food catastrophe um just to me is the best in what the economist does and it's also just beautifully written i mean the lead of the farmer in ukraine um and then it goes then they have reporters in india covering that part of the story it has a uh, has a very solid billboard graph for those of us who, who have struggled with billboard graphs and sometimes need to read them to remind ourselves of how useful they can be in a piece. Um, it's just it's just a great piece full of, of useful data about this incredible problem that we are facing as a globe and that relates to our conversation about the economy. And it has just wonderful facts everywhere you turn. So it's really, really good. I recommend it to everybody. I also uh, recommend the Paris Review with Henry Miller. Um from 1961, in which um all the Paris Review interviews are amazing. Um and but this one is great because the interviewer is going after his process, which as somebody who loves process and loves to ask artists about it, I completely sympathize with. But then at one point Miller goes, I think these questions are meaningless, which is nothing something you definitely don't want to hear when you're doing an interview. Um and nevertheless, it's a um it's great. And I just if you want to um take a little journey, go read any of uh, the Paris Review interviews with authors. Um, but this one with
1: um, with Arthur, with sorry, 321. But this one with Henry Miller is, uh, is very good. All right, my chat are two quickies. One, uh, I'm a monarchist. I very happily support the British monarchy. And in, in, uh, in fact and in, in fantasy as well. And it's the jubilee year of Queen Elizabeth, 70 years on the throne. And I was just struck by this amazing fact, which is go back to 1837. In 1837, Queen Victoria took the throne of England. We're now in 2022, 185 years later. In those 185 years, those two women, Victoria and Elizabeth, reigned over Britain for 135 years of it. So just that span almost the entire history of the united states there's two women who all except for 50 years at the beginning of the 20th century they were the queen and and also i would ask the question has anyone in the history of the world ever held a job the same job longer than elizabeth windsor has held the job of queen of england
3: that's such a great question i mean there must be another monarch right but like it's such a great question you don't think there's another monarch who's ruling Maybe for there's another
1: monarch. Years? I was thinking maybe there's somebody who, like, who some, you know, Japanese craftsperson who's been making beautiful flutes that carved, you know, bamboo flutes for 73 years and is still doing it at 97. Uh, maybe that person. But it's, she's had that job for a really long time, and it's the same job.
2: Louis XIV uh, reigned for 72 years. Oh, man. She's getting
3: there. She's
2: almost there. She's got yeah. two more years to catch up and beat Louis XIV.
1: Uh, and then quickly also just recommend a story in Emily's New York Times by Jack Hitt. want to do less time? A prison consultant might be able to help it's just about a, a, this guy who helps people try to reduce their prison term and get themselves placed into better prisons. And it's, and you, it sounds like it's something cynical. It's a really beautiful, thoughtful piece about how people, the way you get yourself a better prison life is by not by um, it's by going deep in yourself and being, and being revealing who you are to the judge and to the prison authorities. And that's the kind of the best way to uh, make your prison stay likely to be easier and shorter. Um, It's a great story. Listeners, you chatter to us, uh, please keep your chatters coming, tweet them to us at slate Gabfest or email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. And this week's uh, listener chatter was the one I mentioned that I had a friend who wanted to know how to get chatters to us. And he's a mutual friend of me and Emily's. Danny Reich has our chatter this week. Did you know that, Emily?
3: That's so great.
1: My family has gotten a bit tired of
7: hearing me chatter about Robert Caro's riveting account in the path to power of how LBJ stole the 1948 Texas Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate from Koch-Stevenson. You can't help but be struck by the relevance of this story to our political life today. What the story teaches is that it's emphatically not preposterous to think that an election can be stolen. In fact, not only can elections be stolen, but they have been stolen, even sometimes by folks we mostly like, folks without whom there might have been no Civil Rights Act or no Medicare. And what could be more ironic for today's politics than the fact that the stolen result was sealed by an appeal to a strict constructionist, Supreme Court Associate Justice Hugo Black? on the grounds that federal courts should not get involved in the affairs of a state, even when the outcome contravenes our most basic rights in a democracy.
1: That's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher this week is Grace Woodruff. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for podcast operations. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at @slategabfest. Tweet chatter to us there, and please join us at our live show on June 29th at Sixth and I. Washington, D.C. Tickets at slate.com slash live For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Um, there was a period several years ago when basically the entirety of Slate and seemed like the entirety of the the internet media was just people talking about the wire. It was like, Oh, there's this thing about the wire. There's this interview about the wire. Look at this deep dive into the wire. Look at us on explore every aspect of the wire. I spent 13 weeks, one year blogging about a season of the wire. Um, there's just a lot, there was a lot of wire ness, but it's been a long time. And it turns out it's the 20th anniversary of the wire. There is uh And there's a lot of revisiting of this TV show, which, of course, was about Baltimore, the police in Baltimore, the school system in Baltimore, uh, crime in Baltimore, um, journalism in Baltimore, created by David Simons and Ed Burns. Um, Yeah. So we're going to revisit this show. Was it, in fact, the greatest TV show of all time? Has it stuck with you in the way the greatest TV show of all time should stick with you? John, you opened your mouth.
2: I had so many different thoughts. I mean, to me, the first thing that stands out about it, I was introduced, by the way, to The Wire by uh, David Onick, um, my dear friend. Um, and he, I remember so specifically when he said, I'm watching the show and really, and he he uh, has dealt with and spent a lot of time um, in the criminal justice system. Um, and, and his, I believe his point was, this is, um, this is, true or real or you know consistent with um what he saw in in from his vantage point
1: but that was just a snippet from our slate plus conversation if you want to hear the whole conversation go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to become a member today
4: step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family